Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. Over the next few months, we are tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. And in each episode, I am joined by a special guest to dive deep into a monster movie or two. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the strange films that live in this gray zone between art house and horror cinema. It was also the first film that the Final Girls ever screened way back in May 2016. And... To be honest, probably the reason why a lot of our friends gave us some very strange looks when they left the cinema. It's also one of the only, if not the only film that's allowed to get away with using Comic Sans in its opening title credits. I'm talking about Trouble Every Day. The erotic cannibal horror by French auteur Claire Denis. The film follows American newlyweds Shane and June Brown as they honeymoon in Paris. But once there, Shane begins a search for his former colleague Leo, who might have a cure for a mysterious affliction that has transformed both Shane and Leo's wife Corey into greedy sexual cannibals. I've been a big fan of this film for many years now, and I'm excited to be joined by the super smart writer Leila Latif to unpack some of the questions raised in Trouble Every Day and offer also a fascinating completely new read on the film. As always, our conversation will contain spoilers. From about halfway through our chat, we'll be talking about the film's ending and some key scenes. I'll put the exact moment in the show notes. I really do encourage everyone to seek this film out. It's a true outlier. It used to be quite difficult to find, but it is now available to stream in the UK on Mubi. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Just maybe don't watch it on the first date. Layla, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, really good to be back. It's been an uh, end to a not the best summer ever, but like, you know, we're all still soldiering in. <laughs> that we are. And thankfully, we've got a myriad of old horror films to get us through it. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about one of my, not to set the bar very high, but it, this is probably one of my favorite films and one that I haven't been able to stop thinking about oh, for wow. about 10 years since I first saw it. Interesting. Yes. So <laughs> I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on it. So we're going to be chatting about Trouble Every Day, the horror love story by filmmaker Claire Denis. To Mr. and Mrs. Brown. <laughs> Welcome to Paris, Mrs. Brown. I hope you'll enjoy your stay. No, Dr. Simoneau doesn't work here anymore. Look into my eyes. I really need to find him. Just uh, up and left. His wife is sick. Corey's sick? He is very sick. You 
kick it off what is your relationship with this film and with the films of Claire Denis um well I think I have to um start by admitting that I have like a really terrible bias when it comes to this film because and I don't say this lightly I hate Vincent Gallo so much like I hate everything about him I think he's a terrible actor I think he's an awful human being um I I'm one of the people that foolishly sat through Brown Bunny, which is one of the most unenjoyable things you can do as a human. So I I kind of started on the back foot with this film and like his mere presence on screen, like slightly enraged me. So I don't know how much that has informed my opinion. Uh, But I love Claire Denis. I haven't seen everything that she's done, but I love the film Chocolat and I loved High Life recently. Uh, so I was very, I, I was trying to kind of park my biases at the door. Yeah, but, you know, to, I have to confess there um, there was a rage that bubbled in me every time I saw his awful face on screen. I mean, listen, I get it. I, I get the same feeling every time I see Adam Levine on screen, <laughs> which he keeps insisting on doing. But you're not wrong. Um, Vincent Gallo is an extremely hateable human being. <laughs> Yeah, he's bad at his job and he's bad at being a um like a human being just out there in the world. Uh for people that don't know, uh you can buy Vincent Gallo's sperm for a million dollars or for yes. $50,000 he will have sex with you and he stipulates even if you have red hair, are black or fat. So, you know, he sucks. <laughs> there, he's gone beyond the red flag and he's just, you know, parking the I am trash flag in just like right in front of his house and online everywhere. But I think most of what people know him from is um, he had that feud with the great, the late, great uh, Roger Eber about yes. Brown Bunny. Well, he had many feuds. Yeah. He had many feuds. Yeah. But, but anyway, putting that aside... Trying to... Parking the trash heap that is Vincent Gallo to one side. What did you make of Trouble Every Day? I thought it was very interesting. I I, I think one of my things that I struggled with is I kept trying to kind of click into, like, what is this about? Is this all, mm-hmm. like, a metaphor about the AIDS crisis? Is this all about kind of, you know, sexual politics? Is this about kind of, like, the evils of, like, you know, uh, is like sexual freedom, but, and then nothing 
nothing worked by the time we got to the end of the final sexual assault. So I was kind of left feeling a little bit empty whilst I'd, whilst the actual process of it was very captivating. So yeah, I'm hoping mm-hmm. to figure out with you what I actually feel about this film because I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not uh, settled on one position. Interesting. And was this the first time that you watched it? Yeah, it was the first time that I watched it. But watching it, I was very familiar with a lot of the images from this film. Mm-hmm. Like I think there's a lot of um, Corre, uh, Beatrice, is it Beatrice Dahl? That image of her. Beatrice Dahl, yeah. Yeah, with her kind of beautiful full lips and covered in blood. And there's a particular moment in the film where she's sort of pacing in front of this bloodied wall. Like mm-hmm. that, I was very, fam- I was familiar with those. So, um yeah, I think the Vincent Gallo thing had stopped me from hitting play. But I, I mean, I'm certainly glad I watched it. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of trying to figure out what the film is about. Because mm. it's one of the things that I also keep thinking every time I've seen it. I've probably seen it maybe over 10 times over the wow. years. And when I rewatched it just this morning prior to our conversation, it again seemed like an entirely different film. So every mm-hmm. time I've seen it, I'm like, oh, now I get it. This is it. And then every time I come back to it, it's like, oh, no, I was wrong. Yeah. It's actually this whole other thing. And there's so many different ways of experiencing it. And um, within Claire Denise's film, it's also a very strange piece of work because at least when it came out, it was not very well received at no. all by the critical community. And it seemed weird that someone who was... Um, very much established in the art house world would do essentially quite a quite a slow paced body horror so and the images that you bring up that you were familiar with are very very gory and bloody the images of Corey kind of all covered in blood yeah so what do you think about if we try to think about trouble every day as a body horror film what do you think of those um, bloody or horrific elements of it Uh, I think it's interesting because the way that she kind of shoots so much of the violence and the sex in such Mm. close up that like even before we've gotten to a single drop of blood, a lot of things feel very grotesque. Even like there's um, a scene at the beginning which kind of doesn't really tie to anything, but um, just Mm. a, a couple kissing in like real close up. And like there's I don't know how she does it, but it both feels disgusting and like quite like you feel a little nervous watching it, like that these two people Mm. are kind of in like slightly vulnerable positions and like, you know, something nasty could happen at every second. Um, Yeah, so uh, it's an unusual type of body horror because we don't see much beyond just kind of blood. And then Mm. we see things in like close up. So yeah, um, it's not Cronenberg for sure. Um, But it's very, very (laughs) effective and it's very... I mean, I think it's a very upsetting is like a lot of the horror in this film. Like it doesn't just, you can't just kind of play it off as like fun or silly. Like it's, it's gory. It kind of gets under your skin and you, and it haunts you a little bit. A lot of those images, Mm. especially at the end. Yes. The images and also some of the, it always seemed to me a little bit sort of that there's a distance between the music, the sound and the images because mm. there's Tinder sticks soundtrack is so melancholic and it's so yeah. um, sweet almost that then when it's put on top of really, really graphic bloody images, it sort of distances or 
almost makes the effect of the the gore a little bit more intense for me. I don't know if that if how the soundtrack played mm-hmm. into your experience of the film. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I didn't think of it in those times. But yeah, there is like a strange juxtaposition um, of those two elements. And I'm not really sure what what that's for. Um, mm. But it is very... Because that normally if you did something like that, it's because you would be trying to kind of create a little bit of levity in that scene. And this doesn't do that at mm-hmm. all. It kind of does the exact opposite. But I guess that's kind of the mastery of Claire Denis that she can, mm. you know do surprising things to the opposite effect that you uh, would expect and there's a there is sort of a real almost sweetness to the way that she films some of the some of the graphic scenes and i'm thinking especially of the ones that kind of dissolve into someone being eaten Mm. by someone else i wanted to kind of hear your thoughts what you made of those scenes in particular because they switch so not even quickly, they switch so smoothly between yeah. a scene that you can imagine being a sex scene or, um, well, yeah, a scene that you can imagine being a sex scene that's being presented as such. And suddenly there's screams and there's blood and there's an assault going on or, um, you know, someone is literally being eaten alive. So what did you make about about the particular way that Denis films those scenes? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the masterstroke reveal of the film, because, I mean, right from the beginning, we see kind of that this is what happens with the trucker that she encounters, that, Mm -hmm. like, this is someone who kind of has a sexual encounter with someone, and then we see, like, this grotesque um, corpse that her husband has to help her dispose of. Um, And so we know that it's coming, but um, I think the way that she kind of shoots it in such close-up and because mm. you know that this is inevitable. Um, yeah, you're right. That transition is really smooth. And you, you know, I think that's maybe some parallel that she's trying to kind of draw about sex and sexual intimacy. And like, mm. you know, that's where I thought that like, is this kind of cannibalism, vampiric side of this woman supposed to be literally just an extension of her sexual desire rather than mm. anything switching at all? That's that's one of the really interesting, I think, questions around the film. And especially because when we when we first start, Corey is like at the sort of on a highway, essentially picking up anyone that she can find for an mm. encounter. And it's even the images are very much kind of we can we can read it pretty plainly that she is there to pick up a man. And then there's this transition into well, well she's eaten him or she's drained him in some way. So how do you think the film plays around with the idea of hunger and desire as almost interchangeable? Yeah, I mean, that it's funny because um, that's almost the bit that I kind of couldn't quite figure out. (laughs) I'd be interested Mm -hmm. to know what you think. But like, because at times it, it does feel like it almost, it's like this vulnerable person and it's a disease that they have that makes this um, out of their control. And then at other points, it seems like this is just an extension of their sexual desire. And then at other points, it's so linked to infidelity within this film that I'm like, is mm. this, is is that what we're trying to say? You know, so um, I, I left very unclear on that. Um, yeah, it, it's, but then I suppose 
the film is purposefully gives you a lot of room to kind of make up your mind about things like narrative wise. Mm -hmm. I mean, the entire film in a way in most films would just be a setup whilst, you know, she gives us very little in terms of explanation, what the rules are of this, really what people's dynamics Mm -hmm. were that they previously knew one another and um, how, how it all works. So yeah, I think you could come away from it, um, really interpreting this film very differently which I suppose is mm-hmm. is what you were saying earlier that you've seen it 10 times and it seems very different to you each time I think some of that might also be uh Vincent Gallo's bad acting maybe he was trying to give <laughs> us a bit more <laughs> he's definitely the worst thing in it though I mean when you think how hypnotic <laughs> some of the other especially the women in this film are mm-hmm. he seems like he, I did. He's very stiff comparatively. Whilst you know, when you just think of um, uh, Beatrice Dele's like beautiful, um, just like her little movements, like is this kind of mm-hmm. broken ballerina and this like she has. Does she have any dialogue? I mean, she she might not. And but how much she gives you with that, uh, with just like these slight movements and these like little gestures and looks that she gives to people. Whilst comparatively, like. Vincent Gallo gives us, you know, nowhere near as much. Um, so, um, yeah, perhaps with a more compelling central performance, I would have understood how I felt mm-hmm. about the film. It's interesting because you bring up several really, really interesting points. What, yes, I agree. Vincent Gallo is super stiff. I almost think it's deliberate because he is an American in Paris and he has a way of carrying himself that is extremely different in his acting style. Whether you want to think about it as an acting style or just him being a bad actor is very, very different from everyone else around him. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you pointed out that is very interesting is the fact that Beatrice Dahl has this thing and I swear I didn't notice until maybe last year when I was the film was screening at the BFI and I had to introduce it and I rewatched the film again for it and I genuinely was the first time I realized that Corey has no dialogue yeah because every time I'd watched it in my head she was speaking because you know there's a lot of close-ups on her mouth mm. and Beatrice Dahl has such an incredible face as well she really that does. in my mind she was screaming she was making noise she was speaking especially with her husband Leo yeah but actually she doesn't it's it's all based on what the this very very silent performance is giving you like you almost remember her speaking even though the character isn't which I find really interesting kind of as an after effect of the film like an aftershock almost yeah but there's a thing I wanted to get your thoughts on which is kind of how do you think you mentioned infidelity and perhaps kind of as how these two couples that we meet who are dealing essentially with the same affliction you know cannibalism or vampirism or you know this kind of element of monstrosity that's very related to sex Mm -hmm. How do you think these two couples, so there's Shane and his new wife, and they're supposed to be on a honeymoon, and there's Corey and Leo, what do you make of the way that they both deal with this situation where one of the when one of the parties is afflicted with this disease and the other one isn't? Yeah, well, I suppose the difference is that um, with uh, Corey and Leo is that he knows 
I mean, does June ever know? Um, I think she she. I don't think she she knows. She, she seems very upset because it's not explicit. Yeah, I think the, she's upset by by the sexual nature of it, by the fact that there is always like this barrier between them, mm-hmm. and she can tell that Shane isn't really there or is holding himself back. But we're never really he's never really explicitly been violent to her or in front of her. No, but we start. One of the first, I mean, they're very sweet and affectionate with one another, her and Shane, but he is Mm. from minute one having like violent fantasies about her. Yeah. But it's interesting that in both dynamics, you have these kind of people that have this uh, in Shane and in uh, Kare that they have this uh, vampiric curse, however um, you'd want to Mm -hmm. interpret it. I mean, there's suggestion that it's sort of part of some biological warfare but um Mm -hmm. it's unclear um but in both cases it does not manifest when it comes when with their spouse Mm -hmm. but it does seem that when it comes to corey and leo's relationship um that's still a satisfying sexual dynamic whilst when it comes to shane and uh, june um, he's like he clearly is like quite unsatisfied by this. He's you know obsessed with other women, and he is um, mm-hmm. um, masturbating in the bathroom rather than having sex with his wife. So I mean, I wondered afterwards whether that was just her commenting on like the nature of infidelity when it came to men and women, mm-hmm. like with men that it sort of just you know is a barrier um, in their relationship with their spouse whilst kind of women it can kind of be part of more of a kind of a sexual freedom mm-hmm. uh, next time I'm watching it I'm sure I'll think something completely different <laughs> <laughs> which is both the infuriating and the great thing about any film by Claire Denis is that it asks more questions than it gives you answers I think yeah which is admirable really like we don't need to be spoon fed everything we can engage with the cinema we watch and you know have to think yeah. about it and pass it out in our minds and i'd love to zero in a little bit on corey because she's i think one of the most interesting characters in this film mm. and definitely kind of more of an art house monster in a way so we talked a little bit about beatrice Dahl, but what do you think of her performance and of corey as a character i i think she's by far the strongest thing in this film and i I really cannot imagine this film working at all without her. Um, She's just hypnotic. She's so subtle at times. And so Mm. within those kind of sexual scenes, like she just kind of seems to be able to access this like really primal thing without ever going too big with it. I I think it's Mm -hmm. something that's actually incredibly difficult to do because also this, monster this affliction whatever it is is not something that there's a huge amount of reference for like she has to kind of create something that's you know in in of itself which you can imagine a lot of people doing very badly (laughs) (laughs) but no she's she's incredible and but I, i mean part of it actually just comes down to really just what an astonishing face she has hmm like you kind of want to just paint a portrait of it so I can understand why the images from this film particularly of her Mm. have really like stayed with people yeah she does I think she's got 
Beatrice Dahl has like one of my favorite faces mm. off the screen ever. But there's something really interesting that I was thinking um, about these iconic images. Maybe iconic is slightly a strong word because this film is not as widely known and it's not as widely distributed. Um, it's it's not like super available on. Mm-hmm. It's not on Blu-ray. It's out of print on DVD. Really? Yeah. Like yeah. Actually, no, that's right. I had to email you being like, uh, where can I find this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is of interest maybe to literally two people <laughs> and the other yeah. one being Olivia. <laughs> but um, it was, um, this was the film that we first screened uh, as the final girls and like it hadn't been screened in London in about a decade wow. when we screened it. But I digress, kind of one of those, one of those images that has always stayed with me and that you reference a bit as well is those images of Corey covered in blood mm. and there's something interesting about the idea of this of this character of this woman sort of playing in the blood yeah like she's literally covered in it and then she's sort of rubbing it on herself and she's wearing this sort of white dress that's entirely covered with um with this the, her victim's blood and she's sort of walking around and playing around in it almost in a childlike manner. And there's something a little subversive about that because we're so very used to images of women in horror films of women covered in blood. But very often they're victims and they're not sort of reveling yeah. in their gore. So I wanted to see kind of what do you think of the of the image of Corey kind of within the context of horror? Well, I mean, part of that just comes to, down to this phenomenal performance that she manages to kind of, it seems to be both empowering for her, but she keeps mm. this vulnerability at all times. And I think she she really does seem to be a little deflated after her sexual encounters and like not mm. entirely kind of, you know, like... Uh, joyful with the kind of having won the hunt and like devoured her prey like it's more complicated Mm -hmm. than that um I think in a way she in a way it is kind of that metaphor for sex because it was just like oh you've kind of climaxed and then it's like oh Mm. you know okay like it's fine was that all worth it in the end (laughs) (laughs) which I think ties into like these ideas of infidelity because like sometimes you do have this like insane desire for someone and it's like oh okay Mm. I went with that but like now I've kind of ruined my life so um that's maybe uh, yeah uh, there's just so many different ways to look at her it's a really interesting film but like her performance without that um I just I just can't imagine it like, I actually think once she's gone, mm. I really lost interest a bit. Like, mm. but again, that is my Vincent Gallo bias probably coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you think kind of, you know, picking up on this um, tension that you reference? There's there's quite a chunk in the middle of the film where Corey is essentially locked in the in the attic of her house by her husband. Yeah. Ostensibly for her own and other people's protection. There's this a lot of scenes of these two local boys sort of trying to get in the house and then literally ripping the door apart to get at her. Yeah. Um, What did you make of? Yeah. I thought it was like a kind of cool reinterpretation of the Rapunzel story. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Go on. Well, yeah, it is kind of like it's almost like they're like desperately in love with her and they're trying to climbing this tower to like finally 
partly free her, but to have her. And of course that goes like horrible. Mm horribly well depends whose perspective you look at it but it kind of goes horribly wrong um mm-hmm. yeah i i thought it was really cool um how they kept that interesting because we sort of know what's going to happen but even those mm-hmm. like little performances by those young male actors um kind of kept shifting how you felt about the whole thing because in a way in a lesser film it would be like they would be kind of much more rapey and a little bit getting what they deserve Mm -hmm. but the films kind of stops short of that where they are overstepping their boundaries and they are being well gross but like you really do um feel fearful that for them and like empathize with them when it goes as badly wrong as it does and and that is a death scene is um the second death, the big scene at the end is in many respects more horrifying, but that mm-hmm. scene, because we don't really know how this is going to work, makes all of the sex kind of building up to it so much more frightening. Um, yeah, I thought it was really, really effective. You just made me really remember that that first screening that we did and sitting surrounded by about 100 people and when that scene came on and she started Corey started eating the boy's face you could Mm. sense that the whole room was sort of like kind of into it and then kind of a little bit horned up and then suddenly she started eating the face and it's like oh no oh no 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 (laughs) no this is not oh I was I was not expecting that I'm amazed anyone was horned up I've never felt like (laughs) I was like ready to run to a nunnery by like the end of the second act. <laughs> and did you, what did you make of this kind of, you bring up Rapunzel, but what did you make of this um, image of the way that the film kind of plays around with the image of the, the, um, the, I'm using air quotes here, which I do every time and I know it's terrible podcast content <laughs> and I cannot stop doing it, of, you know, the woman in the attic, the woman that's kind of locked in, supposedly for her own good oh yeah that's really interesting I didn't think of it in those terms I kind of well my assumption is because like her dynamic Mm. with Leo seems to be a very like affectionate one and kind of Mm. weirdly non-judgmental is that this is an arrangement they have somewhat agreed to in that Mm. like you know I can't um contain myself so you have to like help me not get into trouble but maybe that's just me reading far too much into their sexual chemistry. Um, it's it, it's it's certainly interesting. I mean, it does seem to be mm-hmm. like a very loving dynamic. Whilst you have Vincent Gallo and he at one point says like, oh, he never loved her, but he was very attracted to her. There's like that contrast with Leo who like seems to have like a very mm-hmm. like loving affection for her that isn't, well, from my interpretation, necessarily about control like he sincerely wants to like help her yeah so my feeling with all of those um you know gates and security and stuff was not Mm. was more about not letting people get in rather than letting her get out yeah no that that's there's so many ways into the that relationship and i wanted to zero in a little bit on the relationship between shane and karay so Mm -hmm we're kind of following their stories separately and then they finally meet. What did you make of the way that they interact and that the ending of Corey, essentially? 
Um, I thought that was one scene that was outright bad. Um, <laughs> that that whole f- the 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 effects with the fire is like very naff the way it's done and it's sort of um yeah no I did I that was it really took me out of it to be honest and then also you have this moment where like Leo comes back mm-hmm. and you I sort of wanted something more but it really cuts away like far too quickly to go back mm-hmm. to a lot of close ups of Vincent Gallo so you know you can imagine how I felt about that. <laughs> but I'm interested. Um, do you assume, with all of the kind of kind of science mm-hmm. that's supposed to be happening in the background, that whatever has infected um, Kore, Shane already had, or do you think mm-hmm. he gets it in that scene? No, I think he definitely had it already. Okay, I that was one thing that I thought was quite. Um, explicit in the film that he is essentially going to Paris not because he wants a honeymoon in Paris but he because he wants to go to the scientists okay. that develop that whatever like it's like you said it's not the backstory of the serum or the disease is not overly explained it's not really explained whether they are genetically just manifested this affliction or whether it was somehow artificial because Leo is a scientist and Shane is a scientist and, you know, we're told that they had some sort of, you know, they were colleagues and that's how they sort of knew each other. Mm -hmm. But I think they both had it. And now perhaps it's reaching the point where it's uncontrollable and they're experiencing it differently. And I think it's sort of, I think, what I'm thinking out loud here, one of the interesting potential readings of it might be that Kare's affliction is more advanced because she cannot control herself, whether Shane still can throughout the mm. majority of the film. And she can't speak. And I wonder if that's kind of like a deliberate thing where she can't she's lost the ability to communicate outside of sort of gasps and screams in a really yeah. visceral, primal way. Um, whether Shane is still coherent, even if, you know, not not a very nice man by any stretch of the imagination. But yeah. that meeting between them I found interesting because it's like, is it where they're just kind of trying to get at each other because they're essentially sharing the same thing, uh, sharing the same affliction? But the decision to have Shane kill Kore... I found um, inc- the more I've seen it and the, the older I've gotten since I've been rewatching it, the more I read into it, kind of the the more not problematic, but inter- an interesting take on Shane's own relationship with women that it shows. Mm-hmm. The way that he treats his wife, the way that he treats the maid. And Oy. we're definitely going to ask <laughs> you about that scene. Um, and that encounter with Corey, it's not... I remember reading it first kind of as an encounter of recognition, but the, whenever I watch it now, I'm like, oh, no. She was sort of already, I think, priming herself up to die. Like, she's playing around with the matches. You, It's pretty much foretold mm. that she's going to set the house on fire and she's going to um, kill herself. But Shane takes that decision away from her. Yeah. My assumption is that she's doing that for Leo because she just doesn't want him to continue in this cycle of like having to bury mm. bodies the entire time. But yeah, it's a shame that that was taken away from her. 
my okay i don't want this to become like one of those like youtube videos that's like trouble every day ending explained but my assumption no i love was, it go for it <laughs> my assumption <laughs> that, that, that is the art house ending explained youtube channel that i want in my head that i want to see i'm so please please go ahead uh my assumption is that shane had an encounter very much like the kind of neighborhood rapunzel boys um with mm-hmm. Corey years before mm-hmm. but he escaped mm-hmm. and he has since been completely obsessed with her and as a result wants to track her down and in the second encounter becomes infected with this thing which was kind of his intention the whole time because he is was so attracted to her and became like obsessed with this kind of bloodlust that she had which is why it manifests differently and uh, yeah that was but then who you know I could be very wrong but when they had those moments about like I was attracted to her rather than loved her and then that's kind of cutting to the young guys who are like desperate to get to this woman I just assume that's what they were referring to happened to him goosebumps like <laughs> actual goosebumps I love that reading you should hear me talk about Tenet like I got some I got some thoughts <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I love it. I never thought of it like that. That's fantastic. Okay. Now I've totally lost my train of thought because I'm just I want to rewatch it now again. I've been watching a lot of these female monster films for mm. the series. And one thing that kind of keeps one of the recurring things is that the monster always dies. Usually yeah. is killed by by someone. So what do you think of the decision of Corey having to die? Um, I I think it's a shame and it's kind of like, it's kind of a cop out. I mean, the dynamic between Mm. her and her husband is quite like the one that you have in like, let the right one in. And Mm -hmm. I really preferred that ending of like, just like that this is going to kind of continue on in one way or another and having it end in again, like, I really didn't like that fire scene. And then not seeing, and I know it's not a film that like gives you everything, but I still felt that we could have just seen a little bit more or, you know, have her perhaps attempt to kill herself. And then you could have this moment of like Leo Mm -hmm. trying to decide whether or not he wanted to continue in this kind of toxic dynamic and save her or Mm -hmm. let her die and like live his life. And I think it's a shame that that's kind of not the way that it went because I wasn't, I mean, as a, I wasn't as interested in what was going on with Shane and June. Mm. And I just feel so bad for that maid. Like, <laughs> what you got, Christelle? <laughs> well, I was I was going to ask you about that um, after Corey's death and after the house it mm. goes up in flames. The film still continues and we're, we're pretty much with Shane and June and Christelle, the maid now. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about that scene when he finally succumbs to his hunger I think this is probably the moment where I'm like I don't know how to feel about this film because Mm -hmm. that was possibly the most horrible scene of sexual assault I've ever seen like I can't really think anything that really comes close yeah I I kind of I kind of don't know how to feel about it because it almost feels like it's beyond artistry at some point. And if, if I can't fully understand what this is trying to say, I don't know how I can kind of 
almost excuse it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, it's I mean, it's tough to watch. It really is. And there's a power to how tough it is to watch. But I mm. think when you have sort of that dynamic playing out with like a kind of female vampiric thing and a man, we're sort of switching uh, the power dynamic and, you know, we're kind of trying to say something with it. But when you see a woman, especially essentially, it's almost like a date rape scenario and that she is very attracted to yeah. him and then... Mm-hmm. Um, she wants to stop and what happens happens. Um, we're seeing something that is a very like real threat to women play out. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that the film is like artistically bankrupt, but I just, I didn't know what we were seeing um, meant much more than just being like unpleasant and kind of shock worthy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, it, 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 it's 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 tough and um i think i'm in a way i kind of need to almost process it a little bit more because mm. i mean I, i've had to kind of rewind a couple of times because the first times so i was like yeah volume off can't quite do this and then like yeah. okay now i know that it's coming i can come back to it with the volume on uh yeah i mean i would say if, if sexual violence is something that triggers you at all keep a very wide berth of this film it's an incredibly valid point to to question the choice of that scene and I think that's one of the 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 power for the of that scene for me is the fact that it very brutally illustrates what that consent is malleable Mm. and that what you consent to in one moment doesn't necessarily allow for something entirely different so that scene begins as a as quite a a consent like a consensual sexual encounter between them like it's illicit but there's and it's been established that she's attracted to him there is yeah yeah there's been quite a lot of build-up throughout the film Mm -hmm. but then it shifts into uh a violent aggression and you know it's heightened in a way because there's this affliction and they're cannibals or vampires whoever you want to interpret it but that's it's essentially the a very graphic illustration of the rough sex defense. Mm-hmm. It's like nobody can consent to being murdered yeah, or nobody can consent to being um, assaulted. And that scene kind of zeroes in on her face in a way that is incredibly assaulting in many ways. Yeah. And, but also I find it extremely powerful. And one of the things, you know, it's, it might be, too much for some people especially this fits into new french extremity as a sort of loose movement of films that were really trafficking with explicit and extreme sexual and physical violence as a way to comment on bigger and and bigger and political issues but it is um it's a terrifying ending because shane at this point has now murdered two women and yeah yeah. he goes back to his wife and he showers off and continues on his honeymoon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, maybe... So we are in a way kind of... Maybe, like, the core of this film is just, like, a commentary on infidelity, but it seems then, like, a little unjustifiable to sort of use such a graphic sexual assault to just kind of 
explain like a man's journey with his like infidelity like it just left me feeling Mm. a little like grubby yeah no I can see that and it's the aftertaste of this film is interesting Mm. because it's interesting that um well you've sort of explained it but I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit more about how you felt about the film kind of after it finished First time after it finished, I was just kind of, you know, kind of quite blown away. I think there was kind of a lot of adrenaline. Mm. Like it was like a very tough final scene, but like, you know, I really, um, the film doesn't necessarily uh, follow like a path that you're going to expect it to. So, mm-hmm. um, and then the second time I watched it, I was like, ooh, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, just felt a little bit like, is this a justifiable use of sex graphic sexual assault on screen like we're almost kind of mm-hmm. getting into uh governing the fridge scenario where it's just like oh we're going to mm-hmm. use like a graphic sexual assault of a woman to show you this kind of inner workings of like what's going on with this man which mm-hmm. i mean perhaps there's a hypocrisy that i didn't have any real issue with it when the tables were turned but then you know it's mm-hmm. not really the same thing a man a woman murdering a man to a man murdering a woman and you know and also there is kind of an element of like that there is something slightly magical well you know something happening with Corey that like makes her able to mm-hmm. do this whilst him in that scene like it's it's nothing beyond the regular strength of that dynamic mm-hmm. so yeah I've, I just thought it on repeated on a repeat viewing it left me quite uncomfortable but, you know, mm-hmm. I'd rather be uncomfortable and challenged by a film than, you know, than not. So that's those things are not necessarily like a, a tick against the film for me. No, it's a it's it's a really interesting. And I ask and I ask that question because the aftertaste of the film, I find with this and there's very few films I find like that, especially the ones that sort of live in this weird gray region of art house and horror mm-hmm. where they're too horrific for your regular art house crowd and they're a bit too slow moving or arty for your regular horror crowd yeah so i love that that kind of gray area but it's not for everyone and this film is one of the very few that i found that people feel very differently from person Mm -hmm. to person you literally remember different things different things stick to you because and maybe it's the thing that you were talking about at the beginning when we started recording of what is it about and yeah. there's so much space for you to project or take away or attach yourself to different elements that you're almost I always remembered Corey. I always remembered Beatrice Dahl I remember I didn't watch it for quite a few years and I was like oh wait oh right Vincent Gallo was in this I'd completely erased him from the film and is the memory. protagonist I mean it's funny <laughs> that like that yeah even like now thinking about it um it's it's so Beatrice's film Mm -hmm. and i I always thought of her as the protagonist yeah she should be (laughs) i mean not that i'm gonna tell claire denise how to make films but she should be (laughs) (laughs) she is in my book but yeah i think i find it very fascinating kind of how to how it attaches yourself to to you as a viewer and the things that remain after it's done because in i always almost think of it as ending after the fire scene 
Mm-hmm. And I'm always surprised, even though I've seen it so many times, I'm always surprised that there is still a bit of film left. Yeah. And that it's it just is quite a shame. weird. I mean, aside from like the sexual assault, there is a lot of kind of strangeness in that last 20 minutes, like mm. with him with the puppy. And then he gets like, he's kind of then very inappropriate with that, um, a middle aged woman on a train. Mm. Um, and the kind that's actually this, the time in the film where we really understand his dynamic with June the best in many mm. ways. Um, and I, I still didn't take that much from it compared to just mm-hmm. like Beatrice um, Dalek um, walking down the stairs. Like, you know, she, uh, she is just, she, I mean, the film is so much more interesting when it um, focuses on her. Which I've said repeatedly, but really, she—it's kind yeah. of can't be overstated how good she is, and also how yeah. much I hate Vincent Gallo. <laughs> <laughs> I will give him no credit. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're not wrong. You're absolutely not wrong. It's a—it's certainly a very strange film, and we've spoken about it for almost an hour, and we're not nowhere near close to even understanding all of the layers of it. Which I kind of love about it. But yeah. would you recommend Is it an AIDS metaphor? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, oh, undoubtedly, you've got to seek it out. Um, find it on Mubi. That's where I mm-hmm. um, got to watch it. Um, it. It's definitely worth seeking out. And it's worth watching more than once. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Leila. And where can people find out more about your work? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Layla Latif, or you can pick up uh, the next editions of Little White Lies or Sight and Sound, and I appear a few times in both. This is the best time of year for me. Autumn. Got all the horror films. Oh, you can also read Layla's amazing coverage of Fantasia Film Festival um, over in Bloody Women as well. Very savage and very funny. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for thinking of me for that. I had so much fun with so many of those films. I think that's one of the great things about genre cinema, that even the bad stuff is bad in an interesting way. Yes, exactly. And that's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot with finding new listeners. And you can find out more about what we do, including screening erotic cannibal horror films to unsuspecting members of the public over on thefinalghost.co.uk. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalghostuk. You can follow Leila on Twitter at Leila Latif. And I tweet emoji-based horror humor over on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we're going to be covering WAP, I mean, vagina dentatas, in our deep dive into teeth.